Jesus tried. I saw him hanging there, the Son of God. With tear-stained eyes, I knelt and prayed, Jesus, hear my plea. Oh, praise the Lord, I'm glad I've been to Calvary. I've been to
Okay, very good. All right, let's take our Bibles, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today. Boy, what a great song. I don't know about you, but that's a good one to get things running on today. I appreciate that. Boy, the choir did a great job again. I love that song the choir sings, don't you? That's a good one, wasn't it? That's a good song. Again, we're glad you're here, and um, I'm trusting that the message will be a blessing to you. I'm just going to trust the Lord with that, okay? I've been working on this thing and trying to get it kind of right, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Guys, are we ready up there in case I need that? Um, yeah, okay, good. All right, very good. Oh, look, it's already up there. We don't really need that yet, but thank you. Okay, good. All right, so they got it. They're ready. I mean, they are on, they're, as they would say years ago, we say Johnny on the spot. I mean, they're ready to go. I mean, boom, there it was. Way to go, fellas. Man, ahead of schedule even. I like it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50, we're going to begin there, and we're going to read through verse 58, all right? And then we're going to just kind of look at the passage a little bit and kind of make an application this morning. Again, I'm glad you're here, and I trust this will be a help to you, an encouragement to you. And again, as a believer, there's, so, there's an element of expectation that God has for us. There's an element uh, of, 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 you know, predetermined course of action for us. I mean, God already knows and has made it clear what we ought to be and who we ought to be and where we ought to be and how we, how, what we need to be doing. And, and so we're going to look at this a little bit. We're going to see that in this particular passage in verse 58, he nails it down. He says, man, I mean to tell you, boom, there's where you ought to be. And so let's take a look at this and see as believers where we ought to be. And we'll, we'll just kind of make some application again today, as I said. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Notice what it says. It says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I shew you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. As we look at this passage, just these verses, even 50 through 58, we see here in the passage, he's talking about a mystery. And he says, I'm going to show you a mystery. I'm going to re reveal a mystery, a truth that's been hidden and now is going to be revealed. And the truth is simply this, that all believers will be changed. Changed at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When that final trumpet, or not final, but when that trumpet sounds that he's spoken, speaking of and referring to, when it sounds, we're going to be taken up. We're going to be taken out. And this corruptible body will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. The truth is that some believers will miss that appointment with death. Wouldn't it be great to miss the appointment with death? I don't know about you, but I'm not really excited about the death itself. 
I mean, to die means you're in the presence of Christ. But I don't know. I mean, the journey getting there could be pretty bad. Man, I don't want to have to go through that journey necessarily. I would be more than happy if the Lord Jesus Christ came back today and I could miss that appointment, so to speak, with death. Because the Bible says we all have an appointment with death. Some young, some old. But we all have an appointment with death if the Lord Jesus Christ does not return in our lifetime. But in this case, he says, I'm showing you a mystery. I'm revealing to you a truth that's been hidden in the past that believers now are going to be taken out. The truth is that some believers will miss that appointment. And they're missing it because Jesus is coming back to receive his bride unto himself. We refer to that event as the rapture of the church. And he's saying simply this, I am coming again. And when I do come, You'll be rescued from this world. You'll receive a new body. You'll overcome the grave and you'll enjoy the victory. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the Bible verse begins by saying, therefore. Therefore, my beloved brethren. What he's saying in that particular case is, as a result of what we just read, as a result of the truth that we've just been given, as a result of the mystery that's been revealed, as a result of everything I've just shared with you, Be ye steadfast, knowing that I'm returning, knowing that you have the hope of a new body, knowing the fact that you're going to be with me and dwell with me for eternity, that I've not left you here to rot in this world, but I'll be back to receive you unto myself. Because of that, be ye steadfast, be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because of all that, because of the promises I've given you, because of what I just shared, that's why you need to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's interesting. God doesn't ask us to do things just to do it. There's always a purpose. There's always a reason. There's always a a, a foundation by which he's building upon. And he's saying, now listen, I've laid out these truths and I've expressed these promises and I want you to be understanding of what's going to transpire and take place. And because all of that is going to happen as I have outlined it, be steadfast then. Be unmovable. That word steadfast means fast fixed, firm or firmly fixed or, or established. We think about the globe itself and it's, it's steadfast, constant, constantly firm, uh, resolute, as, as the, uh, Webster puts it, not fickle or wavering. That word unmovable means they cannot be moved or shaken. It's firm, it's fixed. You say, I know, but isn't that what steadfast means? Unmovable means it can never be moved. And then this word abounding, a wonderful word. Again, having in great plenty, being in great plenty, or, or being very prevalent, generally prevailing, and even overflowing, abundantly, abounding. See, the Bible admonishes us, you and I as believers, to be steadfast and unmovable. He is not talking to the world. He's talking to the church. He's talking to you and I who have already received and accepted Christ. He's talking to the church saying, listen, I'm coming back for you. I am going to give you a new body. 
I'm going to give you a new place to dwell. I'm going to give you a a, a new Jerusalem to live in forever. I'm going to be at the center of it. You'll be with me forever. Therefore, in this life, be steadfast. Be unmovable in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in that work. Now listen, being steadfast and unmovable is an admirable quality, isn't it? As long as we're standing where we should be standing. I think every one of us in the room has have met folks who were steadfast in their rebellion. They were steadfast in their rejection of God. They were steadfast in their own ideology. Sadly, again, there are those that are unmovable, those that are steadfast in this element of evolution or their unbelief in God or their sinful lifestyle, their anti-God agenda, and they are steadfast. They are unmovable, it seems. I I don't know about you, that's not what he's talking about. Listen, you can be steadfast and unmovable over here, boom, or you can be steadfast and unmovable over here. You could be steadfast and unmovable right here. God identifies where we should be standing. And he simply says, be steadfast, unmovable, be firmly fixed, be in a position where you cannot be moved, grounded, solid, secure, Always abounding in the work of the Lord. The question this morning is this, where are you standing? Go ahead and put that slide up real quick, fellas, if you can. Are you standing closer to the world or closer to the work of God? Are you in the work of God? Are you actively involved? By the way, Christianity is not passive, it is active. You know, the Bible says, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you realize that God says there are some enemies and that those that love the world... I'm not talking about that love to have a house or a roof over their head, that love to have a few bucks in their pocket, that love to have a decent job or career. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the world system that is run by little g God, the devil. And that we are embracing his ideology, we're embracing his mentality, his outlook, his focus. Where we feel and think the way he feels and thinks. Where we adopt and we identify with what the world says is truth, even though it goes contrary to what God says is truth. The world. And he says, listen, the truth is you could be steadfast, you could be unmovable in your position today. You could say, I believe in evolution, and I'm not wavering. I'm convinced, based on my upbringing and based on the fact that I've went to school, I know what science teaches. I will not believe the Bible, nor will I believe creation. I am steadfast. I am unmovable, always abounding in the world philosophy. You could do that. And you know what? You would be fulfilling the first couple of statements, steadfast, unmovable. But my friend, you're not in the right place. You're standing in the wrong place. You're a child of God today. And children of God are not to be standing in the world, but they ought to be standing in the work of the Lord. It's interesting. It's, it's not a, an abstract thing, the work of the Lord. Well, 
I'm, I think I'm doing the work of the Lord. Why do you believe that? Well, I'm, I'm, I don't hurt anybody. Abstract. It's not abstract. It's very defined. God outlines it for us to some degree. What is the work of the Lord? It would be the work that the Lord did then. We can really look at his life, can't we? I think we could, and we can identify then what the work of the Lord is. In John chapter 13, verse 12 through 17, it says, So after he had washed their feet, the disciples, and had taken his garment and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. The emphasis in that particular passage focuses on the attitude of servitude. I mean, Jesus was the ultimate servant. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, turn there, would you please? Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Notice as we, we, now we look at Jesus Christ, he says, now listen, I, I've given you an example. I, I, I want you now to do what I've done to you. And I am a servant. You need to be a servant. I've washed your feet. You need to wash my feet, so to speak, and to wash others' feet. And, and, and you need to adopt this attitude of servitude. Notice what he says here in Mark ten forty five. For even the Son of Man talking about Jesus Christ on earth, came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So according to the passage we just read, Jesus came to serve and to sacrifice then. Ultimately, we understand that he would die on a cross, that he would literally give his life for others. He wouldn't just say, good day, have a wonderful time. I'm sure glad I got to meet you. No, he said, I will take your place and die on Calvary for you. I will serve you. I will serve you to the point of sacrifice. I will serve you till it hurts. I will serve you even if it costs me my very life. And it did. And Jesus says, I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. You say, wow, this is kind of rough. I thought the world was all about me. I thought life was all about me and mine. Not according to the word of God, it isn't. It really isn't. Not as for a believer. Not for those that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not for those that have been purchased and bought by the blood of Christ. No, not for us that are not our own anymore, but are his property. We find a very interesting passage in the book of Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 61, would you please? Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. And this particular passage outlines the future ministry of the Messiah. And we know that the Messiah was none other than Jesus Christ himself. So notice what the Bible says about his ministry on earth. He's going to outline it for us here. And and we're going to see it here prophesied in this particular passage. Isaiah 61, verse 1. Jesus, uh, speaking about... Uh, the Messiah, it says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. So everybody that was looking for Messiah understood that the Messiah prophetically 
would have the Spirit of God upon him, that, that he, of course, would be anointed to preach the good tidings to the meek, that he was sent to, the, to bind the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison to them that are bound. They understood that. They knew that. Prophetically, his mission was already outlined many years, 700, 800 years before he ever walked the face of the earth. Now, we see Jesus Christ on earth now. Look in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. We're going to see him step up to the plate now, and he's going to read that passage in the synagogue, and he's going to, anoint, he's going to uh, apply it to him. He's going to say, these words have been fulfilled in your ears today. You are looking at none other than Messiah. You are gazing upon none other than Emmanuel, God in flesh. <laughs> Watch what he says. He reads this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says. Verse 18 of chapter 4, Luke. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and to recover the recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty them that are bruised. Wow. That's what Jesus did on earth. And he made it very clear in the passage, ultimately as we read through, that he says, listen, I'm going to shut this thing right now, and I want you to know, here it is. You're looking at him. The fulfillment of that passage. And that's exactly what Jesus went on to do with his life and his ministry. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So this morning, I want to give you six indicators that you're in the work and not in the world. You say, how do you do that? Well, we're going to take the work that Jesus did because it's the work of the Lord. And if I'm doing the work of the Lord, then I'm not in the world. But if I'm not doing the work of the Lord, or if I'm doing a variation of it, or if I'm not really sold out, if I'm only partially in and partially out, then we need to evaluate ourselves and assess ourselves on this scale. Ask ourselves, are we really in the work of God? Are we fulfilling the word of God in our life? Or are we simply abiding in the world? Am I living my life as I choose, or am I doing the work of the Lord? Am I steadfast, unmovable in the world, or am I steadfast and unmovable in the work of God? Where do I land on this scale? Sometimes I think because we go to church, we just assume we're in the work, or that we're in the Word of God. But let me tell you something, that's not the case at all. We have very specific designators. We see here in the passage in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, that God outlines the work of the Lord for us, His work on earth. And, and, and in Isaiah 61.1, we see that mission prophesied. In, Isaiah, in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, we see that mission summarized in his own life and ministry. And so let me give you six indicators that you're in the work. Let's find out where we stand on this. Let's find out where we are. Where, where are you steadfast? And, you know, some of you, as husbands, you might be steadfast and unmovable in certain areas. And ladies, as wives, you might be steadfast and unmovable. But are you standing in the right place? Some of these teenagers are steadfast and unmovable. But are they standing in the right place? Well, God's children can be the same way. We're standing somewhere. You are standing somewhere. The question is where? And are you willing to move if you're not where you're supposed to be? So let's ask ourselves, let's look at these six indicators and see what we can learn. 
Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We ask for your leadership. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. We need you. Give us, help us with these six things. May we just note them and see where we stand with them. Are we in the work? Are we closer to the world? Where are we standing? And if we're standing, are we steadfast, unmovable? Are we willing to be moved where we need to be and then grow roots? Father, help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'll tell you what, it's not easy to lift up and uproot roots, is it? I mean, I have, I have uh, uh, taken, uh, you know, cut trees down and then I've dug around those roots and I've tried to cut it out real, real deep and you've got all those roots and everything going down through there and you've got to cut this root and cut that root and you've got to dig a little deeper to cut that root. And then, I mean, it's hard to uproot a tree. It's hard to dig out the root. And may I say that if you've gotten planted, if you've been firmly fixed in a certain area, whether it's the world or the, or the, or the work, it doesn't matter. You're probably going to find it's hard to move once you get grounded. So if you're not where you belong today, if you don't line up with the six indicators, then let me tell you, it's not going to be necessarily easy for you to uproot and put yourself where you belong. It's not just a matter of acknowledge, yeah, you're right, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. That's not enough. You're going to have to do some work to uproot it. You're going to have to change some of those philosophies. You're going to have to go in and relearn all over again. You're going to have to die to some things that you once believed were truth. You're going to have to embrace some things that are God's word and start to do things that he says is right to do no matter how you feel about it. It's funny, isn't it? I'm not getting the message, obviously, but see, Brother Houston's wearing on me. I want you to think about this. If, if I tell my kid, my child, to, to make their bed, and I show them how to make their bed, and, and I, I make sure that they're equipped to do that job, I say, now this is how I want it made. This is exactly how you ought to do it. Every morning I come in, I want to see it made. I walk in the room the next morning, and the, 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 the bed's not made. And, and my son says, well, Dad, I'm praying about it. I'm praying about it. You're praying about it. Really? So the bed's not, why is the bed not made, son? Because God didn't do it yet. God didn't do it yet. I know, but I've equipped you with all the knowledge and the tools you need to get the job done. You, You have everything at your disposal. I've given you everything necessary to get the job done the way I've explained it and outlined it. I know, but I've been praying about it and God hasn't done it yet. I know it needs to be made, Dad, but I'm just asking God to get it done. How long is that going to fly? See, God has equipped us and God has enabled us and he's given us all the tools to get the job done. And in most cases, too often, I should say, not in most, but in many cases, as believers, sometimes we sit on the back burner going, I'm waiting for God to do that in my life. I'm waiting for God to change my attitude. I'm waiting for God to change my my behavior. I'm waiting for God to change the way I view this situation. I'm waiting on God. Yeah, but God's already given you his spirit and God's already given you his promises and God's already given you the tools and everything necessary to get it done right. You know what you ought to be as a husband. You know what you should be as a wife. You know what you should be doing as a teenager. Why in the world do you need God to do it for you? He's already given you everything you need to get it done. When it comes to things like this, sometimes we'll go, well, when God changes my heart, then I'll change. When God changes how I feel about what I'm doing, then I'll change it. Well, he's all, we're going to see that he outlines exactly what we should be doing. And the real issue is whether or not we're going to stand firm in the world or in the work or somewhere in between. Let's go ahead and take a look at those. First of all, you're saved. You're saved. The Bible says the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus is talking about that. The spirit of the Lord's upon me. Well, when you look through the word of God, you can't help but associate that with salvation. 
Man, we get in the Spirit of God. We are baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. Let me, let me tell you, you have the Spirit of God living in you if you know Him as Savior and Lord. Now, I'm going to tell you something. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if there's never been a time and place when you acknowledge your sin before a holy, righteous God, and you acknowledge the fact that you needed Him to save you and forgive you, that you couldn't do that yourself, you couldn't be good enough, you couldn't find God's favor in any other thing or anything else that you did, said, or done, and you realized, I need Christ in my life. If you've never come to that place where you've received and accepted Him, then, my friend, you are planted in the world. I don't care how nice you are. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how benevolent you are. It doesn't matter how wonderful of a husband, a wife, or a family member you are. The truth is, if you don't have the Spirit of God living inside you, that's called the new birth in John chapter 3. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. You're born into this world through the flesh. Their mama had you and you were born into a family. The Bible teaches us in John chapter 3 that you are spiritually born by the Spirit through the Spirit of God into the family of God. If you've not been born into the family of God by the Spirit of God, my friend, you are none of His, he says, and therefore you are planted firmly in the world. You need to get out of the world. You need to accept the fact that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. You need to acknowledge that he did indeed come to earth, leaving the glories of heaven to come to this whole wicked, sinful world and live on, and walk the dusty trails of Galilee and ultimately give his life as a ransom for your soul. That he washed your sin white as snow by the blood if you allow him. That he'll do that for you if you'll just trust and receive him. But as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. You need to trust Christ if you haven't. But if you've done that, then already we're seeing that that's one of the factors. That's one of the indicators. You must be born again. You must be saved. The Spirit of God must be upon you and in you. Number two. He goes on to say, but he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. You know, one of the indicators that you are in the work and not in the world is that you're sharing the gospel. You're sharing the gospel. It's not complicated, is it? It's not hard. You say, I know, but this seems a little bit, it's not abstract, is it? It's very practical. I mean, Jesus Christ came to this earth and he had the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. Now, listen, he, he did his work in the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, he was God. I know, but he still needed God the Spirit, the Spirit of God. The Holy Ghost. And he did that. And he himself went about telling others about the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel, preaching the gospel. Let me ask you, are you sharing the gospel? The Bible says in John, Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. One of the indicators that you are more in the work of God or that you're in the work is that you are actively sharing the gospel with others. You're telling people that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again. You're doing that. You're actively sharing it. I didn't say you're just living a good life. You're sharing the gospel. By the way, no one that I've ever seen has acted out the gospel in front of me at work. I've never seen anybody going, you know, that's shaking off the dust, moving to the next city. I'm going. And then ultimately, and then ultimately, and then ultimately, No one's ever acted out the death, burial, and resurrection at work. You know what they had to do? They had to share it. Whether it's through a pen, a writing, some form of communication. Now, you can go to a play and you can see it 
acted out in front of you, that's one thing. But the last time I went to a play that acted out that, I don't even remember the last time. I'm telling you that you don't get everybody to go to a play like that, but you do reach everybody, or you do have access to everybody at work, everybody at school. We do have access to friends, family, neighbors, and things. If we are not, are we sharing the gospel? Are we telling them about Jesus, about his work? That's one of the indicators. So are you saved, number one? Are you sharing the gospel, number two? Number three, he goes on to say, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Let me ask you, are you filled with compassion? Are you filled with compassion? In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, the Bible says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Notice that Jesus has compassion on people because they fainted, they were weak, because they were scattered abroad. The Bible says he had compassion because they had no shepherd, no leadership. Do you realize that people that are lost without Christ have no leadership? They have Satan directing them, but as far as I'm concerned, that's worse than any leadership. And the truth is, even believers today and folks out in our world that have trusted Christ, many times they they are not in churches where they belong. They're not having the Lord leading them. They find themselves in a position where there's great need and where they need some leadership in their life. And he's saying, listen, i got compassion on those people. I'm not angry all the time with those people in that sense. I have compassion on them. I'm brokenhearted for those people. I want them to have leadership. I want them to to, to find order in their life. I want them to be strong in their their, their life, their selves, and, and their philosophies. Matthew 14, 14 says, And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassions toward them, and he healed their sick. He had great compassion. You know, the late Colonel Sanders, you know Colonel Sanders, right? He was the guy, the founder of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, you, you probably know him. He was on an airplane, and an infant started to scream. I mean, the baby just kept screaming and screaming and screaming, just wouldn't stop. Even though the mom and the flight attendant and everybody was trying to trick the little baby, uh, do anything they could to get it to stop crying. Finally, Colonel Sanders, he went up and asked if he could hold the baby. And he started to gently rock it, and, and the baby fell asleep. Later, one of the passengers said, we all appreciate what you did for us. And he said... I didn't do it for us. I did it for the baby. So many times what we do, we do for us. I mean, compassion does for others, right? Jesus had compassion. You know that Jesus had a heart for you. I wonder, who does your heart beat for? It's easy for it to beat for our own children. It's easy to beat for maybe a husband or a wife to some degree. It's easy in those situations. But what about the rest of the world? Do we have a heartbeat for anyone else? For anyone else that's in plight? Anyone else that's having a difficulty? Anyone else that finds it hard to make it in life? Compassion. Uh, J.C. Watt Jr. made the statement, compassion can't be measured in dollars and cents. It does, come, it does come with a price tag, but that price tag isn't the amount of money spent. The price tag is love. Compassion. Jesus had compassion. I wonder, do you have compassion on people? Do I have compassion on people? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. See, these are probing questions. First, are you saved? Number two, are you sharing the gospel? 
Number three, are you, are, are you a man or a woman of compassion? Are you, are you filled with compassion? Do you see fellow, fellow citizens and fellow mankind as, as, and, and with a broken heart and through eyes of compassion? Number four, the Bible, Jesus said, well, I'm here to preach deliverance to the captives. To preach deliverance. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been captive, if you've ever been in a position where you couldn't get free and someone freed you, let me tell you something. It was a wonderful thing. I kind of equate this kind of to me with hope. I mean, to preach deliverance to the captives, to say, listen, you're not going to be bound. There's still hope. You're still going to be free. Let me tell you what, don't worry about it. You're going to be all right. We're going to get you out of this. Well, I don't know about you, but that seems like hope. I wonder, are you an ambassador of hope? Jesus was. An ambassador of hope. In John chapter 14, turn there, would you please? Of course, Jesus Christ is going to go to the cross. And these disciples have been traveling with him for a number of years now. They find out he's telling them, now listen, I'm telling you, it's not going to be good. I'm going to be delivered over to the hands of men. I'm going to be falsely accused. I'm going to be uh, part of this mock trial. They're ultimately going to find me guilty even though I'm innocent. And they're going to place me on a cross. They're going to kill me. But let me tell you, the third day I'm going to rise. But notice what he goes on to tell them. Listen, Jesus was an ambassador of hope. Even in the midst of that dark day, even in the midst of that time of difficulty, he says to the disciples in John 14, 1 through 3, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. There was an article in Parade Magazine some years ago. It spoke of a self-made millionaire by the name of Eugene Land. Eugene Land would ultimately be used to change the lives of sixth grade, a sixth grade class in East Harlem. He had been asked to speak to a class of 59 sixth graders. I mean, what in the world could he say to inspire these students? Students that, statistically speaking, would drop out of school. The majority of them wouldn't even make it through school. He wondered how he could get these children to, to look at him, let alone listen to him. And then he... He just kind of scrapped his notes, just threw them aside, basically, and he decided just to speak to them through their heart. And at one point in the conversation, he said, stay in school, and I'll help pay the college tuition for every one of you. He got so involved, and he got so, so wrapped up in what he was telling them, and he was trying to reach out to them. He said, listen, you just stay in school, and I'll help pay the college tuition for every one of you. At that very moment, the lives of those students changed. For the first time, many of them had hope. One student said, quote, I had something to look forward to, something waiting for me. It was an amazing feeling. Nearly 90% of that class went on to graduate from high school. And a number of them went to college. Why? Because he was an ambassador of what? How important is it as believers that we are ambassadors of hope? 
I mean, we have Jesus Christ in our own life. We have Jesus Christ in our marriage, Jesus Christ in our families. And, and yet, so many times, we're so discouraged and so distraught and so down in the dumps when we ought to be an ambassador of hope. Boy, the world needs something. The world needs someone, and it's Jesus. We carry him with us everywhere we go. We ought to be ambassadors of hope. Let me, I'm telling you, I don't know about you, but the work of the Lord was to be an ambassador of hope. If you're not an ambassador of hope, if every time you show up at work, people go, oh, great, here we go. So cynical, so critical, oh, nothing's ever right. My friend, I don't know, maybe you're not so much in the work as you are the world. We need to look at our lives and really evaluate. How does the world see us? How do others see us? Not how do we see ourselves. How do others Jesus said, listen, I'm going to tell you something. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. You need to be saved because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. You need to be sharing the gospel like I am. He he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. You're filled with compassion. You ought to be filled with compassion like I am. And then he said to preach deliverance to the captives. I was an ambassador of hope. That's what you ought to be doing because see, the very things that I did, the example that I left you, do as I've done to you. Number five. Are you teaching and training others? You say, really? Yeah, well, he says he's recovering this of sight to the blind. He's helping them to see things now that they could never see before. Opening up their eyes to a whole new world. That sounds a lot like teaching to me. Sounds a lot like somebody that's training others. And we know the Bible tells us, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Um, as a professional animal trainer, uh, I read about a professional animal trainer and she was talking about it. She said um, she was disturbed that, um, that her own dog had developed a bad habit. Every time I hung my wash out on the clothesline, she'd yank it down. Drastic action had to be taken. I put a white, chick, uh, a white uh, kitchen towel on the line and waited. Every time she pulled it off, I scolded her. And after two weeks, the towel was untouched. Then I hung out a large wash and left, uh, you know, and, and left to do some errands. And when I came home, my clean claws were scattered all over the yard. On the line was the white kitchen towel. <laughs> yeah, that dog had learned one thing. Don't touch that white kitchen towel. Hey, listen, teaching and training can be very frustrating, can it? It can be very frustrating. To bring true life change in someone's life demands unwavering determination and dedication. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not easy. It's not simple. It's not uncomfortable even at times. It demands service and sacrifice. Jesus was teaching and Jesus was training, not just the disciples, but all those that came unto him. I got to believe at times he was frustrated. But it was a work that he did. It was the work of the Lord. Are you doing the work of the Lord? Does it go beyond just simply teaching your children how to make a bed? How to wash the dishes? How to do some of the chores around the house? As a believer, are you teaching and training the world? Are you trying to reach out to family, friends, neighbors, and loved ones, and others, and try to teach and to train them what God says they're to be, to help them to arrive where you have finally gotten? I wonder, are you steadfast, unmovable in the work or 
Are you closer to the world? If these aren't a part of your life, if they're, not involved, if they're not a part of who you've become, then maybe we're not planted where we think we are. Maybe we're a little bit more selfish than we'd like to believe ourselves to be. Maybe we're not quite as sacrificial as Jesus was. Maybe we're not like him, and yet he says that we're to be conformed to the image of his son. We're to be like him. We're to be doing the work of the Lord. That's the responsibility of all of us. Name the name of Christ. Finally, to set at liberty them that are bruised, he said. Are you healing and helping the hurting? In Matthew 4, 23, it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. It's interesting. Christopher... uh, uh, Searcy, he was playing basketball with his friend on May the 16th, 1998, when he was shot in the chest. And a bullet perforated his aorta. His friends helped him to get within 40 feet of the entrance to Ravenwood Hospital. And then went inside and asked for help. The hospital staff refused to help Christopher, saying that it was against hospital policy to administer aid to those outside of the hospital. Eventually, a policeman was able to get a wheelchair and wheeled Christopher into the hospital where he was helped by the hospital staff, but it was too late. Christopher died about an hour later. You know, you and I are surrounded by people that are in desperate need. Their desperate need to hear the gospel, their desperate need to... to, to, be need, to be helped, to be touched by the Lord Jesus Christ, to see that he's real. A desperate need exists in their life. But too often we're waiting for them to come inside. Well, we'll treat you if you come inside. I'll teach you if you'll come to my class. The pastor will preach to you if you'll just get to church. The gospel will be given if you only make your way to Community Baptist. We're waiting for the world that's in desperate need of Christ and desperate need and has desperate needs in their life to come to us. Yes, this is a hospital for sinners. I'm a sinner and so are you. But if we wait for everyone that needs him to come to this place, we'll never ever impact our community or the world we live in. Jesus did not work within the walls of a church building. He walked the dusty trails of Galilee. Are you healing and helping people? Not just here, in, but outside there. Six indicators that you're in the work more than in the world. Hey, you're to be steadfast, unmovable, so am I. But the question is, where are we standing? Where are we steadfast and unmovable? Is it in the work of the Lord? And we've defined the work of the Lord from this passage in the book of Luke. Are you saved today? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you filled with compassion? Are you an ambassador of hope? Are you teaching and training others? Are you healing and helping the hurting? You say, I'm not doing a lot of that. Well, let's let's be honest with ourselves at least. 
And let's not, let's not deceive ourselves. Are we doing the work of the Lord? Or aren't we? He admonishes us. Because we aren't going to be left behind here. Because we do have the, the, a new body waiting for us. Because we do have the hope of heaven and eternity yet. He says, therefore be ye steadfast. Unmovable, always abounding. I owe God my very best, so do you. I need to be in the work of the Lord. And so do you. May God help us as believers not to settle for anything less than what He wants for us. The work of the Lord. Are you saved today? Do you know Christ is your Savior? If you don't, let's get it settled. Father, we come to you.